Thank you for listening to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast from Asheville, North Carolina. For more information on Trinity Baptist Church, please visit tbcashville.org. Or to learn more about our senior pastor, Dr. Ralph Sexton, please visit ralphsextonministries.com. The speaker for today is Pastor Winston Parrish. We're going to go in our Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 11. And in this story, there are some things that I believe the Lord would have us highlight today that would help us in our walk, that would help us where we are today. This is not abstract. This is real life. And I think that this story, this incredible story, where Saul, right before he becomes king, is used in a particular way to send help to people in need. Let's read together in 1 Samuel chapter 11. The verses will also be on your screen if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. Say that word with me. Jabesh-Gilead. This is a city. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them on this condition. Will I make a covenant with you that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel? And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers unto all the coast of Israel. And then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Verse number 5 says, And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field. And Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings. And his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them into pieces and sent them throughout all the coast of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Verse number 8 says, And when he, being Saul, numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were three hundred thousand. And the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall you say unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by that time, the sun be hot, ye shall have help. Ye shall have help. Let's pray and ask God to be with us this morning as we study His Word. Heavenly Father God, we love You this morning. Father, we're thankful for Your Word for the truth that is found in your word and God, how it can be an encouragement to us and Lord, how it can show us things in our life that Father, only you can do. Lord, we need you today. And Father, I pray for just a few minutes as we study your word that Father, you would hide me behind the cross. Father, you would empty me of self and Father, that you would use me as a clean and broken, empty vessel. God, to be used to preach your word. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for all that you're doing in the life of our church. And all God's people said, Amen. So we see this story, this situation, this little piece of history in the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 11. 
And what's happening here, I want to be real fast. I want you to get this, where we're headed, but you've got to understand what exactly has happened. And Pastor Donnie, we talked about this at 8.15. How do we know where a city is in the Holy Land? When we go to study and we look at archaeology, how do we know that this is a city? The walls. So the walls of Jabesh Gilead are there. This is a uh, city that is east of the Jordan River. And if we study out history, who lives there? It's actually the tribe of Benjamin. These are not nomads. These are not people without inheritance or rights to the land. This is the land that God's given them. It's rich for them. It's where they're supposed to be. And it's where God put them. And it's the people of Jabesh Gilead. And all of a sudden, quickly in these first two verses, we see that Nahash, the Ammonite, is encamped around the city. And he wants to take them captive and make them slaves. And we see how quickly things get very serious. We see that the people in Jabesh Gilead don't put up a fight. We see that they don't go to war. We see that they quickly are easily able to say, we'll surrender, we'll sign a peace treaty. You just let us work for you and everything will work out. And some things are happening very seriously, very quickly in this story. So the people are encamped about, they are pressured, and all around them is the threat of death for their family, for their friends, and for their way of life. Now let me say this about Nahash. There are, the Bible is so full of incredible biblical names. And if you're here today, and you're expecting, and you've got a baby on the way, and you're looking for a good biblical name to name your child, Nahash is not the name for you. <laughs> there are multiple other names. Go with Daniel or Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, even Acts or Romans, Revelation, whatever. Don't use Nahash. It sounds like something on the menu at, I don't know, maybe the Waffle House. Nahash. So let's get back on track. So Nahash, this bad man with bad intentions, is encamped around Jabesh Gilead. And he's wanting to take them captive and make them slaves. But when I read this story for the first time, there were some things inside of me as a man, as a pastor, as a husband, that really got under my skin. That really irritated me. And let's highlight, if we will, for just a few minutes, three things very quickly that we observed that happened with this story. Number one, to get to where they were, encamped, surrounded with the threat of death, the first thing I noticed is that there was obvious complacency. There was obvious complacency. You see, those walls were to have watchmen. Those walls were to have somebody watching for the enemy approaching. You don't move an army that far and that fast without stirring up dust and sounding the alarm of the men on the wall watching the city, watching and protecting over the innocent people. The first thing I noticed is that there was obvious complacency. Somebody let down their guard. Somebody got comfortable with the fact that everything was going okay and we didn't have to worry about the enemy coming. Obvious complacency. So my question is, who was standing guard? Who was standing on the wall watching? And if this is in our lives, our wall, our family, our church, then we have a responsibility, men, husbands, pastors, to be standing on the walls, to be watching and to be warning the innocent ones of the impending danger. Somewhere, somehow, someone got complacent with their comfortable life and took their eyes off of what was most precious. 
what God had given them. And in our lives, it is so easy for us to get into a place that we've created where we get complacent and you turn around and next thing you know, sin took you farther than you ever wanted to go and sin has kept you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And it is so easy to get comfortable in American Christianity where we have no persecution, we can preach openly, we can carry our Bibles to get complacent in our walk and in our God with our lives. Your marriage deserves to have somebody watching over it. Your children deserve to have somebody watching over it. Your Sunday school class deserves to have someone keeping watch over the flock. Coming to church is not about checking a box, being present, doing something that kills a little time. Being a part of a church, a congregation, a body of Christ is this. It's accountability. And part of being here is that if you aren't here, then we have a job as a family of God, a family of faith, to say, hey, I'm going to be a watchman in their life. I'm going to call them. I'm going to text them. I'm going to go see them. I'm going to see what's up. They may be encamped by the enemy. So we must guard ourselves from what happened in Jabesh Gilead, which was obvious complacency. We are to watch. We are to be accountable. And today, as you exit the building and as you walk around and as you look and you see someone that's missing or someone that's usually sitting in a seat, may the Holy Spirit of God bring that to our mind and to our heart and may we act on it. It's part of being inside the comfort and care of a local church. We fail daily. There's so many people going through battles and struggles and issues and problems. And it's easy sometimes to fall through the cracks. But regardless, we have a job to do to be watchmen. And so many people in our church right now, today, even as you sit here, you are encamped by the enemy. You have a problem. You have an issue. You have a pain. You have a hurt that no one even knows about but you and God. But I have good news for you. You're in the right place today. Obvious complacency. The second thing we see was an offered compromise In verse number 2, the enemy, Nahash, looks at him and says, Okay, we'll do this. I'll I'll sign your treaty. We'll be friends. But I'm going to embarrass you. I'm going to embarrass your family. I'm going to embarrass your town. And more than anything, I'm going to embarrass God. And every time you go into the presence of God, or any time that you go into the presence of another friend, you're going to be marked for life with the fact that your right eye has been taken out. And I'm going to tell you something today that the enemy doesn't want you to know and understand is that the devil, the enemy, your enemy of your soul, always, every time, will have a compromise available to doing what's right. There will always be an easy way out of doing right. There'll always be a path of least resistance when it costs the most, when it means the most to do right. The devil will always have compromise available for you to choose to do. It's human nature to go the opposite way of doing what's right. 
And instead of these men getting together and saying, no, we're not going to sign your treaty. No, we're not going to fight. No, we're, 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 we're just going to kind of back off. That drove me nuts. I wanted to read the next verse that said, and they gathered together and got their swords and their spears and their shields and their M16s and hand brigades and 716 uh, M49 howitzers. And they got battalions of men and they went to war. But that's not what happened. They were willing to compromise something that didn't belong to them in the first place. They're willing to sign over something that they didn't pay for. It'd be like me going to South Turkey Creek and saying, here's my dad's house, here's my dad's land, here's my dad's cars, here's my dad's family, here everything my father has ever given me and our family, let me just give it to you without a fight. No, no. That's not how it's supposed to be. You see, because God gave you your family, God gave you your church, God gave you the ability to go to your job, God gave you health, God gave you wealth, God's given you everything good you've ever had in your entire life. It's not yours to give up. But there'll always be a compromise to sell out. And that's what's happening here in Jabesh Gilead. Compromise that was offered The third thing I see and where this really starts to transition and where I want us to focus today by the help of the Lord. The third thing I saw, number one, I see obvious complacency. Number two, I see offered compromise. And number three, I see their only choice. The only choice these people had. Read with me in verse number three. And the elders, the leaders... Of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coast of Israel. And, and, and then, if there be no man save us, we'll come and we'll be your servants, we'll be your slaves, we'll sell out. Give us seven days. And Nahash is so confident in his evil, and Nahash is so confident in his wicked ways, and Nahash is so confident in his own destructive power, he agrees to it. Fine. Have your seven days. But I'm coming for your eyes, I'm coming for your family, and I'm coming for your identity. Now where this story takes a turn, and where this story gets good, and why we don't read in the next verses, and Jabesh Gilead was overrun and everyone died, was because of this. Saul is in the field. He's working. And he hears the people in Gibeah where he's living not far away, crying. They're upset. And Saul comes out, and look what happens in verse 4. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field and said, What aileth the people that they weep? Verse number 6, he finds out about what's happening in Jabesh Gilead. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul. And when he heard those tidings, his anger was kindled greatly. Here's what happened. Saul hears about his friends, his family maybe, the people he loves. This is a tribe of Israel. This isn't vagabonds. This isn't some group of people that are nomads. These are the children of Israel who are encamped, 
who God gave that land. It doesn't belong to the Ammonites. And the Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he gets angry righteously about what he's heard. And when that righteous indignation comes over him, he does something that I encourage you not to do in modern time. He hacks all of his ox to death, cuts them up in pieces, and mails them out to everybody in Israel. He says, we're going to get an army together and we're going to go help our brothers and our sisters in Jabesh Gilead. And if you're not with me, this is what's going to happen to your ox. That's a message. He sent it well. And so this army comes up, 300,000 from Israel, 30,000 from Judah. And look what he says to them. These people are encamped. They're surrounded by death. They're surrounded with destruction. And they're surrounded with the thoughts and fears that they could be slaves forever. But look what Saul says in verse number 8. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And he said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. Here's the bottom line, ladies and gentlemen. There are people here today, you are encamped, you are surrounded, your life is absolutely in shambles, and you don't know what to do. There are people here dealing with depression, anxiety, panic attacks. You're taking more medication than you ever have in your entire life. You've had to change doctors. Nothing is helping. Nothing is causing the pain and the grief to go away. There's problems that maybe even your husband doesn't know about or your wife doesn't know about. But nonetheless, the problem and the issue and the pain and the concern is there. And today, as you sit here under the sound of my voice, you are encamped in your life. You are in your Jabesh Gilead. Maybe the problem and the pain and the issue is self-inflicted today. Maybe the problem today is sin. And and maybe it's gotten to the place to where you're dull from it. And maybe you're at a place where the sin isn't that big of a deal in your mind. But when you go to bed at night and you put your head on the pillow, there's no peace. There's just darkness. You feel alone. And you're here today. And there's good news just like there was for the people of Jabesh Gilead. Ye shall have help. You are here today in the best place that you can possibly be with a problem that you can't fix. Let me say that again. You are in the best place you can possibly be with a problem, with an issue that you can't fix in your own power. There are things going on in my life I have no control over. There are things going on in people that I care about's life that they have no control over. There are marriages in this building today that if God doesn't intervene in your, in your family and in your home, you're looking at divorce this year. There are people in this room, you have to go to chemotherapy this week. There are people in this room, you have to go to dialysis this week. There are people in this room who are hurting, but I've got good news for you. You're in the right place to get some help today. How in the world can I change these circumstances or situations? How in the world am I supposed to make it on the money that's coming in my home? How am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to figure out this situation? How am I going to deal with the person that lied on me at work? How am I going to fix my family? We are in the right place. 
You're in the right place today. So what is worth fighting for? What are we fighting for today? There's four things I want to give you that I think all of us, regardless of where you are in your life, that we're all fighting for. Well, Winston, I'm not really fighting anything. Everything's great. I've got money. I've got health. I've got my family. I'm happy. I've got a new car. I've got a 401k. I've got a 403b. I'm good. No cancer here. Everything's fine. We're going to the lake. Can I tell you something? Whether you want to know it or not, you are at war today more than you've ever been before in your life. Because the second we step out the door, this place is nothing more than a shell for the people of God to come and meet and worship. But outside those doors and outside these walls, there's a battle that rages The first thing that you're fighting for is your family. Whether you want to or not, there is a war to come for your family. There's a war to destroy your home. There is a battle that the enemy has drawn up ready to attack your house. If you have an internet connection, a phone connection, a satellite connection, the warfare is already in your home. You're at war for your family. The second thing that you're at war for, the second thing is your identity, who you are. What am I? I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I'm sanctified. I'm looking forward to heaven. I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me. And the enemy, if you can, help me listen to me now, if the enemy can, he'll rob you of your identity in Christ. The enemy likes to remind you that you're a failure, that you're nothing, that you'll never be good enough, that you'll never be this and that you'll never be that. Your identity is in Christ, but today there's a war to steal who you are. If the devil can keep you down, if the devil can keep you discouraged, right there in the mud, in the mire, and keep you from going forward, living your life in Christ, he's winning that battle. Your family, your identity... Third thing you're fighting for today is your very presence here in this building. Your worship. You're fighting for your worship. If you come into this building Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, it's wonderful. But it doesn't mean that life's going to be perfect. Let's just be real. Who's been faithful to church and not had any problems? My hand's not up. That's not reality. And that's why I have such a problem with preachers that stand and preach this prosperity gospel that is so false and so unrealistic. And it's not scripture. This life is painful at best. You're not supposed to even really feel comfortable here. This is a vapor. Your passport says heaven issued by Jesus. This isn't home. But while you're here, your identity, who you are, what you are, and your worship is vital to living here and making it. And there is a war today to keep you home away from this body of faith, this house of prayer, this house of worship. There's a struggle. How many know that everything goes great on Saturday night when you're ready to go out on a dinner date? Are you going to take your kids to the movies? Are you going to go to the park? Everything just goes as smooth as possible. You can get 15 kids dressed, fed, clothed, and out the door on time to make your movie. Well, we paid $15 a ticket. That's just how it goes. It goes nice and smooth. Then on Sunday morning, the alarm rings at 6.30, 7 o'clock, 9.30, whenever you get up on Sunday to come to church. And it's like everything has fallen apart. 
The tires are flat. The oven caught on fire during the night. The cat's missing. Everything falls apart on Sunday morning. Can I tell you what that is? That is a war for your family to not come to church. This is where you're supposed to be. This is where you're going to get help. This is where you're going to come to the altar and pray and ask God to do something for you. This is where you're going to meet friends. This is where you're going to meet people that will pray for you and love you and carry the weight and the burden of this life together. And if the enemy can, his plan would be to keep you from ever stepping foot back in here again. You're at war. You're at war. And see, I think it's time, I think it might even be hot time, as some people would say, for some of us Christians to get off our fuzzy slippers, our Crocs and our flip-flops, put on some war boots, and stand up and say, Devil, you can't have my church, you can't have my family, you can't have my wife, you can't have my kids, you can't have my town, you can't have my community. It's God's. It belongs to Him. When are we going to stir up and get in the fight? We're at war. But Winston, you don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know the pressure I'm feeling. Yes, but God does. God knows. You don't know the pain and the tears on my pillow in the 3 o'clock in the morning, dark in the, in, the, in the absolute hell of my life. You don't get it. Yes, but God does. He knows. And the good part is He cares. Jesus loves you. There is nothing rhetorical. There is nothing cliche about the love of the most beautiful Savior in history. Jesus Christ. And He loves you today. And if the devil could through this war, how does the devil win a war? He isolates. He cuts you off. This is the supply chain. This is where you're going to get ammo. This is where you're going to get some help. This is where you're going to get band-aids. This is where you're going to get more reinforcements to go help you fight. There's a war raging. The third thing is your worship. The fourth thing is your prayer life. If the devil can keep you out of your prayer closet, he can keep you powerless, he can keep you down, he can keep you absolutely feeling totally cut off from anything. Because the power isn't in us, the power is in the Holy Spirit of God. And the most beautiful thing that God ever created, the most intimate thing that Winston Parrish will ever experience here on this earth is when I do this. Dear Heavenly Father, God, in your precious and holy name, thank you for hearing my prayer today. Your prayer life is the most intimate thing you'll ever experience. You are talking directly to the creator of the universe. You are talking to the person who created the oceans and the mountains and the sun and the moon and the stars and the same God that made a way for you to have salvation through and by the execution of His darling Son, Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful setup. And it's the most intimate thing you'll ever do. The problem is we don't do it. That's the issue. This isn't God's fault. This isn't God's problem. It's a me problem. This is Winston's problem today. I fight the war through and by the help of God and the things that he's given me to fight with. Jabesh is willing to give up something that doesn't belong to them. And maybe you're here today. I don't know your situation. Some I do. Some I know, 
But there are some of you here today, I don't know your situation. I see people. There's broken hearts over here. There's people over here with addiction. There's people over here with other problems in their marriage. There's all kinds of problems here today. I'm here with them too. But can I tell you something? All you have to do is ask for some help. He is able to change any situation. I worked in EMS for 11 years. I got to work. There's so many of the people in here today that I got to work with. Pastor Zach, Dan, where's Lee? Lee, where are you at? Wave at me real big. There he is. He had to supervise me. God bless him. He was my boss. And these guys, there's Adam and Ashley. My goodness. People that I worked with. And they've been here and they know what it's like, what I'm getting ready to say. But one of the hardest things I ever had to deal with in that time of my life was getting a 911 call. You'd get in the truck, drive at a very safe speed to the call as fast as it would possibly go. Lights and sirens. And you'd get to the call, you know what you're going in for. Someone's sick. Someone needs a paramedic. Someone needs life-saving intervention right this very minute. And all my job was was to help as much as I could, get them loaded in a truck that could get them to more help. And on the way there, try to sustain their life and keep them as comfortable as possible, right? That's the job. That's the reward. That's the good part. Seeing people who are hurting be pain-free by the time you get to the hospital. See somebody whose heart wasn't beating anymore be awake or have a tube down their throat and a heartbeat back and they've got a path to recovery. That was a wonderful experience. But the hardest thing I ever had to deal with was this. When the call came too late or it was beyond anything anyone could do for the person in need. And some of the toughest things you'll ever have to do would be go into a house and look at a father and look at a mother and say, I'm sorry that there's nothing else I can do for your child. I'm sorry I can't help your father. He's gone. He's dead. He's not here anymore. There's nothing I can do. Those were the worst words I ever had to say. There's nothing I can do. I'm sorry, the wreck was too severe. The damage to their body was too real. They're gone. There's nothing I can do. And to see people's lives crushed and their hearts broken, it would tear you to pieces. To see the result of sin. The devil's a liar. But the problem is he's doing the same thing to us spiritually. He's robbing us of our joy. He's robbing us of our tears. He's robbing us of our prayer life and our worship. But I've got such good news for you today. Every single person under the sound of my voice this morning, that is not the case for you. We're not at a point of no return. We're not at a point where I have to look at you today and say, I'm sorry, you've messed up way too much There's nothing I can do. 
There's nobody in here today too bad, too far gone, too big of a sinner that Jesus Christ in His precious, holy, redempting blood can't reach down into the mess that you're in, pick you up, wipe you off, and set you on a path of righteousness. There's no one in here that's there. There is hope for every single person in this building. There's hope for you. And through and by you going into a season of prayer and asking God, instantly you have His ear. You don't have to wait for an email response. You don't have to wait for certified mail. You don't have to wait for a lawyer or a legal team or the county or the city. Instantly, you're in the throne room of a three times holy God with your pleas and supplications. Ye shall have help. I don't know what you're going through. Miss Angie, help me for a moment. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know where you are. But Jesus does today. And ye shall have help. You're not alone in this battle. You may be here today and you feel completely and totally isolated. Maybe you're here today and you've been coming to this church for 10 or 15 or 20 years and you feel all alone. I have good news for you. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. Wife that's dealing with depression and anxiety, ye shall have help. Husband who's trying to make a way and make a living and love his family, ye shall have help. To the teenager over here that's trying to find your identity and what life is going to be and how to live in a social media culture world, ye shall have help. To the single adult who's looking for companionship and for love and for your future, ye shall have help. To the old saint of God who's been faithful for years but your body is broken and weary and you're tired and you're that close to giving up, ye shall have help. It doesn't matter what color your skin is today. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank today. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you live in today. It doesn't matter how many times you messed up today. If you want help from Jesus, He's willing to give it. Where we all need to leave, where we all need to leave today and live today is in verse 3. Give us seven days. Give us seven days days. And there's some people in here with situations that if today you would come down to this altar and you would say, God, I'm asking you for seven more days. God, I need help today. God, give me till next Sunday. Let me make it back next Sunday. God, give me strength. God, do something that only you can do in this situation. You would be shocked to see what God can do in seven days. The question is, do you believe that He's able? And are you willing to ask for the help. I've tried everything to do in my power. I've tried every pill. I've tried every drink. I've tried every talk. I've tried this. I've tried... Listen, you've tried everything else. Why not try what Jesus has to offer you today? You're not going to find it in a drug. There's no peace in alcohol. There's no peace in money. It'll corrupt. It'll fade. It'll go away. But the peace... And the knowledge and the love of Jesus is forever. Let's stand. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. Is there someone here today that would say, 
Pastor Winston, I can't get into my entire problem, my entire issue, but I'm facing a battle. I'm facing a pain. There's something in my life going on today. I can't even put it into words, but I, I need some prayer help today. Would you raise your hand and wave at me? Hands all over the building. Hands all over the building. Let's do this. You come and pray. These pastors are coming to the altar now. They're going to help you. You come today. Don't stay in your seat. If you raised your hand that you've got a problem, then you've got an issue. You be man enough. You be woman enough. You come forward and we will pray with you. We will do whatever you want to do today. No one's going to embarrass you. We're here to love you. We're here to help you carry that burden. Church family, if you're good in your life and you're spiritually where you need to be, I ask you to help me pray for those that are not. Let's not move. Let's be still. If you need to come and pray, you do. But church family, let's pray for those that need help today. Brother Doug. Jesus, Jesus, Lord, to me, Master, say. about singing his name. Sing it again. Jesus, Jesus, worship him today. Worship him. Sing it again, Brother Doug. God, we love you and we're so thankful for your word. God, we're thankful for the help that you provide anyone who's willing to ask. God, I pray today, Lord, that as this week goes forward, God, that we would remember, God, what you've taught us today. God, we're thankful for the Holy Spirit of God that will comfort us in our time of need. God, for the person that's here today, Father, that's struggling with a problem, an issue, a pain, a habit. Father, I pray today Lord, that you would do something for them that only you can do. God, we ask you, God, to intervene in that marriage that needs to be changed, God. God, that you would intervene in the life that's closest to eternity without Christ. Father, that you would make us attentive. God, that you would lead us and guide us in all that we say and all that we do. 
God, I pray that you would keep us safe as we come back here tonight, that we would all be faithful to be in our place. God, that we would go forward as watchmen asking for help when we need it the most. God, we love you. We worship you. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you for being with us today. I pray that today God spoke to your heart. You know, it's one thing to hear Ralph talk. It's one thing to hear a choir sing. It's one thing to hear a group bring a special song presentation. But it's altogether different when you're sitting there in that hotel room, in your house, maybe listening on your phone while you're at work, and God speaks to your heart. That's not me. That's not a Baptist, a Methodist, or a Presbyterian church. That's God. That's personal. That's you. And the Bible teaches quite clearly that when God touches your heart, when He speaks to you, that you can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Bible teaches that all of us have to have Him. You say, well, Brother Ralph, your dad was a preacher. My dad being a preacher couldn't help me. Well, you say your mama taught Sunday school and she prayed. That couldn't help me. The Bible says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says, not me, not the Baptist, the Bible says that there's none righteous, though not one. Today is the day of salvation. You can begin anew. It can start over. The past can be covered by the blood. You can get out of living in your rearview mirror, the guilt, the problems. God can forgive you and you can start over today. You say, Brother Ralph, how is that possible? Well, a simple prayer is that very beginning. God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. And I promise you, God, from this day forward, I'll serve you with the rest of my life. You can begin again in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to read your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you call us, you write to us. We'll send you a copy of the Word of God. And I want to encourage you to get into a local church, a church in your community, that you can have a fellowship of faith that will help you grow and teach you about the Word of God. Today's the day of salvation. This is the first day of the rest of your life. Let's serve the Lord together and let's meet each other in heaven. I'll be praying for you and I ask you to pray for me.